Hi, this is Time Capsule, episode 396, and I'm Tony Tolado. And this is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore our humanity. Time Capsule will mix new and older interviews in a magazine style. And we're going to preview a new series coming up on Sci-Fi Talk Plus, the last episode of The Science of Mars, The Human Element. And here is former astronaut Leland Melvin, author of Chasing Space on Leadership. It's a specific type of leadership because it's a it's a very hostile environment and people here that are in leadership positions unless there's or tornadoes or unless there's a zombie apocalypse or you know something comes it's just crazy um, they're not going to have to react in ways that are the same way that you would to save someone's life in like one minute if something gets depressurized you have to react in a way that's systematic you know, um, taking control and, sh- and and being able to shut other things down to solve the problem, or everyone dies. And that's the same thing on space station, same thing on space shuttle. The leader, the commander, has the leadership role to trump any other words that are said. He says, "You shut up, you do this, and you're supposed to do it." That that's how it that's how it is because it's a, it's a life or death situation. He offers more on the right leadership. Well, when you when you get to a place where the criticality of decision making doesn't cause people to die, then it can go horizontal. But I, and 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 there's a there's some tipping point between the two, you know, based on the criticality of the of what people are doing. So if you're flying if you're flying a helicopter on Mars, and if the person flying it, you know doesn't really know what they're doing, the commander needs to take over and say, I've got the stick now. And, and that person has to relinquish because that person's in charge of that part of the mission. When I was in space station, I was in charge of the robotic arm. I was in charge of moving the robotic arm and I could tell anyone that, hey, this is what you need to do to support me or go away because you're, you're not helping me. You know, so you have a, a resident expert who can it can do those things. So vertical, horizontal, I think it depends on the criticality of the of the task that's being done. Do, do we over romanticize space too much? Interesting. Being there, interesting. Being there is obviously different than what I would think it is. So, and and we because of our fiction, we look at it. You know, going back right. to like Buck Rogers right. and things like that. So do you think that happens? And when you're really there, it's like, oh, it's not like that at all. It's cold. I mean, it's actually a little lonely at times. I, I think any anything that's new that you explore and it's been talked about and it's been dreamed about and it's fantasy and magical and science fiction and all this, it's romanticized. I mean, it's just by default because you don't know what it is. The stars. Oh, what are they? What are they? You know, what is that up there? You you write poems about it. You you know dream about it. But once you get there, you know, on the space station, I'm thinking I'm going to look out the window and see all this beauty, which I did. But the toilet, everything floats. You know, I mean, like if I don't do this right, there's going to be <laughs> stuff everywhere, right? <laughs> so there are moments in your experience in space that are mundane. You got to clean the filters. You got to 
make sure you put all your stuff away because your underwear are going to float in someone's face while they're working on the robotic arm and then everyone dies, you know? So there is a mundane part of that, but that's part of living. That's, it's anywhere. But the flip side is you do get these views and you do get this collaboration with people that we used to fight against. I'm there with Russians and Germans and French and first female commander and African American and Asian American. It's like a Benetton commercial, you know? It's like we're all just working together happily, knowing that if we don't support each other, we all die. And that's, and that's beautiful. Because flying over Afghanistan, you're looking down and you're like, there's some stuff going on down there that's not good. And other places that you see. So it's, I think if more people could have the chance to go to space and look back at the planning in that way and get this, uh, this positive overview effect, I think more people will come together. And so if that's a romanticized piece, I think it's a romanticized, but it's also a reality. It was a reality for me. Physicist and futurist Dr. Michio Kaku and also Alder Planetarium astronomer Lucianne Walkowitz comment on the commercialization of Mars. I think it's inevitable that there's going to be a little bit of conflict, but I think that's going to generate energy, enthusiasm, competition I think is a good thing. Now when you look at the uh, Apollo space program, it was great, the government did it, but it was very expensive. The Apollo space program absorbed 5% of the entire federal budget in 1966. 5% of every dollar you paid in taxes went to the Apollo space program. That's unsustainable. Now we have Elon Musk, we have Jeff Bezos of Amazon, we have uh, Virgin Galactic, we have all these uh, billionaires coming in, and that's rejuvenating the, uh, the space industry. So I think it's a good thing that we have private enterprise, because NASA was criticized as being the agency to nowhere. Great program, but federal budgets mandated that you could not go back to the moon, could not go to Mars, and so it stagnated. The agency to nowhere. Now we're going to go somewhere. So I think it's a good thing that we have private enterprise rejuvenating the, the space industry, though, of course, priorities are going to get skewed a bit. These are big egos. They have to make a profit. They have shareholders to deal with. But I think overall, it's a good thing. Well, so there's always been conflict, um, I think, between the interests of private industry and scientific exploration. But it's important to realize that historically, scientific exploration and private industry have never been separate. Going back to, you know, the early, like, voyages that went to do measurements of the eclipses, those were all scouting missions that were funded by, you know, people with commercial interests. And I think that... um, even when you go and you look back at the early history of like the first satellite in space um, was a spy satellite that was funded by the government and put up by a private company. So even now that we have people like um, Musk or Bezos who are involved, what's really changed is I think the narration around what they're doing because they're still vying for government contracts. They're still getting their money from NASA. Um, And even though they're trying to angle for more independence that has maybe been the thing of the past, what's different is really kind of the packaging around them as opposed to somebody like a Boeing or Lockheed Martin or Northrop Grumman who have been government contractors for a long time. So, you know, I think that it is true that scientific exploration and commercial interests like the actual like ability to turn a dollar is 
pretty different and I think could lead to conflicts just like the one you see on the show and, and that it's important to explore, there's always been this connection um, going back to the very beginnings of the space program. In fact, if you look at the Wild West, Hollywood movies uh, about the Wild West, on one hand you had the ranchers. The ranchers in turn were up against the miners. They were up against the, the sheep herders. They were up against the railroad. And it made for good copy on Hollywood movies, but that's the reality. That's how the West was won. The West was won by a combination of different interests coming together to form a new nation. So I think in the same way the Wild West was a prototype of how America was developed, it'll also be a prototype of how civilization will develop on Mars as well. Especially because prices are dropping so that private enterprise can jump right in. For example, the movie The Martian with Matt Damon, that movie cost $100 million. But the Indians put a probe on Mars for $70 million. A Hollywood movie about going to Mars costs more than actually going to Mars. And that has opened the door to private enterprise. You can catch the entire series complete and uncut without commercial interruption at Sci-Fi Talk Plus. Real easy to enroll. Click on the link in the show notes for free lifetime access. Yes, it's free with no obligations. Silo production designer, and I'm going to use the French pronunciation because it is a French Oregon name. Gavin Bouquet talked to me about designing the silo. Yeah, it's interesting. If you go back, um, you know, maybe 20 years, I remember when we were starting on shows, the visual effects team, when it when it was a, you know, a slightly more fantastical show, the visual effects team would come on, you know, maybe a couple of months or three months after us. But gradually over the, uh, you know, the last few years, it's it's obviously become necessary and quite rightly so that they almost start at the same time as us. And Daniel Rochberger and his team, are not exactly sure, probably we spoke to them within about three weeks of starting because the, the inevitable question is always, how much do we build and how much do they build? And there's no sort of theory you could write down on on that. It's, a, it's something that all our experience from their point of view and our point of view sort of come together. And each scene, each little bit of storytelling often requires a different answer. So there's never really one rule. Uh, I mean, very much in general, if you're shooting in a huge, a huge environment with only very short scenes in it, the chances are you're going to produce most of the backgrounds digitally. But if you're shooting a very long scene in an environment, you're going to want to give uh, as much physical set as you can, just because of the cost of compositing the visual effects side. And I think my experience, most visual effects departments I've worked with have um, uh, have always said, build as much as you can. <laughs> That's always their sort of rule. I mean, it's it's not strictly true, but it what what's hard what what makes it a bit tricky is that it's it's easier for us as an art department and construction to quantify our costs. You know, it's paint, it's nails, it's wood, it's timber, it's metalwork. Whereas the visual effects side is more sort of shock shock count, and of course until they have the edit, they don't really know what the shock count is. So I think they have a slightly uh, more difficult time of trying to budget what they have to do because there's nothing to quantify it until they get later on in the schedule. So that's where 
a lot of the experience of, say, Daniel and his team and, and myself and our team, we just look at everything and hopefully we just come up with a, a sensible answer. <laughs> you know, we probably couldn't theor, theor, sort of theor, put a theory down about it particularly, but uh, and in some senses it's not rocket science. You know, there's a point where you want to give as much physical background as you can just because, it, A, directors and actors often like to work against something that's physically there but then anything over a certain size is going to become impossible for us financially to build it. And space-wise, obviously, I mean, our, you know, our stages was 40 foot high, but the silo is a mile deep. So, yeah. you know, we're not going to, we're not going to build a mile deep set. <laughs> no, it, it's amazing. You know, I, what really came into, uh, into practicality was when, uh, when Rebecca Ferguson is running up the steps and I was wondering how far did that go <laughs> exactly? Well, I think right, right I mean, when you start on a show like this, you understand visually what you're trying to do, but also there has to be a huge backstory in your head about the cost and the practicalities of how you're going to achieve what you're designing. It doesn't necessarily compromise the design, but it's something that you have to think about. And I think talking to to Morton Tilden as our first you know, main director and Graham Yost, the, um, the showrunner, and also Hugh Howey, who was, who was involved at the beginning, that we always had this rough idea that the, every level would be about 30 feet apart. And then within that level of 30 feet, there would be two or three floors. So when we when we had sort of established that in our heads, and I can't remember the exact timeline, but we've there's a general feeling that Morton felt that he needed two balcony levels in the stage, which obviously with the staircase connecting at least one balcony to the next balcony. So with that 30 foot difference and coming off the ground a little bit underneath for six or eight feet, separating it from the, the blue screen on the floor, we sort of knew we needed a stage space that was going to be 40 foot plus. And, they didn't have a stage or studio when I joined the show. They were sort of scouting for industrial sites, as often happens these days. Um, uh, and the production did find this sort of old freezer um, unit up in the north of London, which, although it was full of freezer units at that point, um, we could see that it was, you know, 40, 45 foot high, obviously with no grid or no gantry or no film pluses in that sense um often as an art department all we need is a floor and walls that's you know <laughs> we'll just build on the floor but obviously other departments need a little bit more te technology so we always knew that our two levels of floor plus a little bit above and it was a pitch ceiling on, on the, this warehouse as well that we knew there was a a bit of a compromise without a grid grid because looking up in any blue screen we were going to get quite tight but mark Patton, who was the the, the main dp um and daniel and visual effects they both understood that that morton really wanted those two balcony levels so they did some jiggery pokery very compromised on how much space there was above the upper balcony so we basically ended up with two balcony levels and the staircase was joining one and then to the second one at the top. Look for Silo on Apple TV+. Plus. The entire first season is available, all 10 episodes. Highly recommend it. Rebecca Ferguson leads a great cast. You've got to see it. I had the pleasure of sitting down with legendary writer Richard Matheson, 
who wrote for The Twilight Zone, plus screenplays for The Incredible Shrinking Man, and also writing his novel, I Am Legend. We'll begin this way. Uh, which story or stories do you like or would you consider some of your uh, best work? Well, the one that I have coming out now I think is quite important. It's, it's short but important. It has to do with uh, male-female relationship and uh, how it has uh, not improved all that much throughout history. Then the other books that I feel would be of importance are have to do with metaphysics. One is called A Primer of Reality, which is filled with quotes by all sorts of interesting people. And the other one is called The Path, which I derived from a part of a book by a famous metaphysician named Harold W. Percival. The last novel that was published, they call it uh, Hundred Past Reason, but it's a terrible t- title, wasn't my title. I think I Am Legend is an excellent book that you wrote, and it's been you know it's been done into the Omega Man and all that. But I think the original novel, to me, holds up. You know, it's about the loneliness of fighting the good fight and all that against all these hordes of vampires. And I thought that was such a cool, cool book. And the movie just didn't come close to it. I'm impressed by the fact that so many people have mentioned that book as being the genesis of their interest in the entire field. Toby Hooper told me that yesterday, that he read it when he was a kid and uh, it never left him. And uh, other people have said the same thing to me. That particular book, I don't know what what it was that uh, latched on to uh, an emotion in, in the readers, especially the young readers. And uh, the only other one I ever had that had that effect, they it was originally called Bid Time Return, then they changed it to Somewhere in Time to, because the film was so much better known than the novel. I, I think that's a very well-written book. Probably the best written book I have uh, now. Uh, maybe uh, What Dreams May Come, which is about afterlife and, and what it might be like. That is, uh, that's probably a more important book because of what it has to say. But uh, it, it is the, the writing is okay. It's, it's just not not as outstanding, I think, as uh, Somewhere in Time. Of course, he's gone, and that's why I treasure that interview, because he was a real giant, wrote some great stuff. There's more Time Capsule, episode 396, so stay tuned. René Aubergenois was a talented actor with skills in theater and television. He spoke at a convention about playing Odo on Star Trek Deep Space Nine during the run of the series. René Aubergenois was shapeshifter Odo on the most diverse Star Trek series yet, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. It's like playing any other character except that at a certain point you melt and you become jello and you run all over the place and then you become something else. And when, it, when I become something else, it's obviously not really me. It's done with like special effects. And uh, so that like one, one show I had to turn into a rat. And so I, I didn't have to come into work the day the rat worked. And, uh, but when I came in the next day, 
everybody said, oh, you were great yesterday. You did really well. But actually, all they were doing were filming the rat running around. So um, it's really not that different from playing any any character. You just, uh, he's uh, he becomes very uh, real to me. And so I don't even think about it. I do a different voice for Odo, but I don't do that voice. Like right now, I'm not talking in that voice. I don't know if you know, if you know Odo. Odo has a sort of a gruff voice like that. But I, I find it difficult to do his voice when I'm not in my makeup. He talked about how he was used on the series. I, I think every season they've given me great stories. There have been some seasons where I've had less to do, not not that many stories to do, perhaps, but every story they've ever given me where, where Odo has been featured, I can't think of one that I've thought was not interesting and challenging. Um, and uh, so I have no, no complaints. And... You know, Armin, my dearest friend on the show who plays Quark, he, he's he's a workaholic, and all he wants to do is be heavy in the shows. And I'll say to him, are you heavy this week? And he'll go, no, and you know, he'll look unhappy. And he said, what about you? And I say, I have one line. And I'm saying, <laughs> there are some times when, I mean, I, I do so many other things and uh, run around the country doing other things. And so I, I enjoy having the breaks. But, uh, yeah, uh, Odo's, I think there have been some wonderful stories. This was a classically trained actor. I, I studied, uh, I went to university at uh, Carnegie Mellon University. Um, before that, I, um, I, by the time I was 16, well, by the time I was 10, I, by the time I was 6, I knew I wanted to be an actor. By the time I was 10, I was acting in local community theater. By the time I was 16, I was an apprentice at Stratford, Connecticut Shakespeare Festival under the mentorship of John Hausman. And uh, then I went to Carnegie. Mellon, and uh, after that went into regional repertory theater for uh, about seven or eight years, and during which time I played massive numbers of classical roles, uh, and um, and then moved into freelancing. Let's go back to the first season of The Walking Dead, and Andrew Lincoln talked about shooting a key scene inside a tank. It was wild, yeah, because, I mean, it, a lot of it, it's, it's interesting because people say, how do you prepare for those kind of scenes? And a lot of it's physical because you just have to ramp it up to get to the point where you think, oh, this is where I kill myself. So because the design and because everybody is so good in all of the departments, it made my life and our lives so much easier because it just felt real. You know, our job, I said to Frank, I said, if we're going to sell this world, what we need to do is make it as raw as painful as difficult as um, as beautiful as kind of intimate as we possibly can to, to make sure that people really buy the fact that there are zombies out there and they're going to chomp you know we, we have to work a lot harder I think but then that's a great opportunity it means that you're kind of having like Sarah was saying you, the world is so ramped up that it makes our job more exciting and for me to say oh it's a, it wasn't it wasn't a big dilemma it's just been a gas I go to work and I get to do I get to wear a cowboy hat and jump on a horse and shoot zombies for a living I mean come on we're having fun yeah we're having fun here but it is it's kind of it's it, it's brutal as well you know and I love that about it it's, it doesn't feel like the, the same rules apply to this show than any other show I've ever been involved in which is which is kind of cool it's, it's it's rare and it's a surprise I was there at the last roundtable for the series Fringe at San Diego Comic-Con. 
And here's Joshua Jackson. No, I, I felt like last year it was a necessary outcropping of the finale from the season before. So I, that, that all made sense to me. And the, vaca- the extra vacation didn't hurt either. So, um, you know, I think our story has gone in the directions that our story has gone. And it is what it is. So this year I'm in the beginning of the season. Last year I wasn't. But it, it didn't freak me out that I wasn't there. It felt like a necessary step for the show to be taking. That being said, it's really nice. This year, Joel has been really, really forthcoming in a way that hasn't always been the case on our show. So it's nice to have this shortened season that has a really specific linear story that it's trying to tell, a very, very clear beginning, middle, and end story. And to be brought in to be a part of that, it allows... At least me, but I'm sure all the rest of the actors would tell you too. It allows us the opportunity to get ahead of what we're doing, as opposed to just experiencing it in the moment, because a lot of times those scripts are coming in very late, to really think out, all right, so those are the signposts of where he's taking the story this year. How do I want Peter and Olivia to be at episode four? And how do I want Peter and Walter to be at episode eight? It allows me the opportunity to, to think out those things ahead of time. So it's, so I mean, I haven't started shooting yet, but so far the season's great. And that's Time Capsule, episode 396. I'm Tony Tolado. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts. Take care.